Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me, as always this week, is my co-host, John Tidy from reaperblog.net. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing really well. Excellent. You're not sick this week. I'm not, finally. <laughs> Maybe by the end of this call. Sure. This week, we have a guest on the show who is someone who many of you listening may already be familiar with, uh, Dallas Taylor from the 20,000 Hertz podcast. If you guys listen to, I think it was episode 43 about amazing audio podcasts, uh, 20K was right at the top of the list of shows that we talk about. It's very cool to have Dallas here as a guest. Um, he also runs a production company called De Facto Sound and that's going to be the kind of the meat of this episode in terms of talking about what he does there and uh, mastering for broadcast i've titled the episode although i think we'll probably get into how maybe that's not quite the the right thing to call it anyway dallas welcome to the mastering show thanks i am extraordinarily excited to have this conversation i think it's going to be pretty epic Fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to start off by turning the tables on you and asking a question I know you ask many of your guests, which is, what was it that made you fall in love with sound? So I was a uh, trumpet player for my childhood. I wasn't great at really anything in school, uh, or maybe it was more I wasn't really interested in a lot of things until band came along, for some reason picked up the trumpet and miraculously very quickly uh, became kind of the best uh, in my class. And I, I don't know why. My grades were just kind of so-so or, or whatever, but I, I picked that up and fell in love with the trumpet and then really fell in love with classical music kind of as, as a teenager and then jazz and, and all this stuff. So I really spent most of my uh, early years uh, throughout high school and college really focused on, on classical and jazz performance as a trumpet player. Uh, but midway through college, I started to bout with some really, really bad performance anxiety. That coupled with some teachers would say you're, that your best performance is going to be in a practice room. And that was something that kind of stuck with me along with the performance anxiety that kind of crippled my, my performance aspect. Two things happened. Uh, one, I wasn't enjoying it because of the performance anxiety. And two... I was uh, really just uh, wanting to make something that stuck and stayed forever. Um, now, of course, uh, we're probably going to talk a little bit about this. Things change out in the real world, but it's really nice to craft and build something out and it stays uh, stuck. And so um, so that's essentially the, what, what led me into the sound world. Uh, I initially started with the music aspect of it uh, really quickly. Like uh, I'd say in the matter of like a couple of months went from like, I want to full force do music recording and then full force into sound design. And, um, that was, uh, that was about, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago. And then as soon as I made that turn, um, I just fell in love and then just started, uh, started going down that path very aggressively. So that's pretty much what made me fall in love with sound, um, was, was kind of my history as a, as a trumpet player and my love of like classical music, which seems incredibly relevant to what I actually do now. Yeah, genuinely, right? Because I mean, you have a lot of classical music or, you know, orchestral music, at least film soundtrack music in the, the in what you do. So that, that all of those skills must be really useful. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take that actually a step further because uh, the one thing that we don't do uh, on the sound design side and mix side is we don't do music. We do mix it with other elements. 
But one of the things that my company doesn't do very strategically is is um, music composition in any regard, because um, we found that our partnerships have actually been a lot stronger uh, with different composers and, and directors and people just because we very much specialize on everything else. Um, and to really like go full circle on that whole idea of music school into now, um, the last thing I wanted to do before before going full force into sound design is I wanted to be a conductor specifically. I thought about being a composer, um, toyed around with it, really enjoyed it. But the one thing that I loved more than anything was like crafting an ensemble together. And if you think about it, that goal of being a conductor never really went away because essentially what I do now is I have a, you know, a big row of faders and EQ and all this stuff. And instead of telling, you know, the first violins to do this specific thing in a, in a soundtrack, I craft it. And um, again, I don't do this on the music side specifically, even though we do mess with music a little bit. And I'm sure we'll get into that um, to make it work with all the other elements. But, uh, but I feel like I am a conductor, like what I do now in mixing and sound design feels very much like a hybrid of like composing and uh, very heavily on conducting, like conducting to me and mixing is like nearly the same skill. And it's, um, it's fun that like, I, I wanted to do one thing, but I didn't define it until much later of like the very specifics and I could tie that tech and conducting together. Yeah. It's interesting. You're actually the second person who's something like, I think it was Elko Grimm, um, who was talking about saying the same thing that being a music producer is, is very like being a conductor and is kind of like the ultimate. And that's interesting to me that you, so you, so you kind of fell in love with sound design as part of your, after making the decision to get into audio and recording and stuff rather than kind of, I don't know, watching Star Wars or some other, you know, lots of sound engineers have this moment where some particular piece of sound art kind of grabbed them and they were like, oh, I, I want to know how that's done. I want to do that. Or did that kind of happen to you as part of that process? It was interesting. I, I think that I've, since very early, I, I don't think I des- defined it as early as that time, but I did notice that when it comes to sound or the sense of hearing, music does get all of the attention. Like it kind of commands all of the art and all of the, um, you know, if you want to make something better, you think about music and like hearing in music is so hand in hand. Um, but, but I noticed that like, there's the rest of the world out there. And, and to me, and of course, of course I couldn't define this at the time, but like now I think about it all the time like the most beautiful sound and, and, you know, if you want to call it music or the most beautiful things in the entire earth sonically are what nature provides. And, um, and, and we're so like in tune with that in our brains and, and all kinds of stuff. So I just noticed early on that like sound very much equated to music. Like when someone talked about like good sound, they thought they talked about music typically. And yet there's this giant world of sonic information that's happening all over the place all the time that is, that is outside of music. And, uh, and the great thing with sound design specifically, and is if you bring this like compositional mind to it and, you know, thinking about frequencies and even everything has like a tonal root for the most part, unless it's straight white noise, you can start to really craft things. The same scene, I can make it feel like really dark and like something's about to happen just in sound design, or I can make it feel like someone's really peaceful. And, and you can kind of do that just with, with, you know, picking certain things and pitching things and frequency ranges and EQ and, uh, and then the volume, I mean, mixing is just such an incredible, uh, uh, tool for, for a lot of that stuff. 
I just kind of started noticing like, there's all this other stuff outside of music that is really important that I don't hear anyone talk about. And uh, that kind of is what led me into it. I've been very inspired along the way with different pieces of film and uh, video games, especially. Um, I mean, video games, I would say, would be what what made me fall in love with sound design because it's just so far out there in the forefront of, of what's happening. Um, so I've had the most in, impact creatively just from kind of hearing uh, video games along the way. And, um, and yeah, so, but, but yeah, it was kind of like, there's been like much more for just a sonic aspect that I felt like just was, wasn't, was underappreciated and really loved kind of getting to the bottom of that. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating because I remember getting the, uh, the soundtrack album of apocalypse now out of the library when I was a kid, um, on vinyl. And it was literally, as far as I know, actually the soundtrack to the film. So it had all of the Foley, all of the dialogue, the whole lot um, oh, wow. in there. And I just remember sitting there with headphones on listening to, and I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I was way too young to appreciate the film and just being kind of enraptured and, and kind of befuddled by everything that I was hearing. But a lot of that was, is, you know, the kind of the, the sound of the jungle or the helicopters or, you know, whatever it, whatever it is. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I completely understand what you're getting at there and we're gonna get on to we're gonna talk a little bit hopefully about the the kind of the process uh, that goes into bringing all those things together because there's all kinds of stuff in there that i was fascinated to ask more about but maybe just before we get that finish the kind of the introductions just can you say briefly kind of how and why you started de facto sound i mean presumably you'd you'd worked for a few larger companies and, and just wanted to be your own boss sort of my biggest break was just pointing a camera at a news person just because it's hard to get any sort of paid job in the industry. It has to be typically a really kind of wonky way of getting in. But I knew if I could point a camera at a news person that somewhere within 30 feet of me, there's probably going to be an audio board. And that's that was like my in. I immediately, like day one, started hanging out with the audio person who was so flattered that, that you know, someone was really into what they did, that they brought me under their wing, uh, taught me kind of this entire... Um, how they do it uh, to the point where very quickly I was mixing like news and sports shows. Uh, that gave me a really great foundation on just audio in general, because uh, you have to set everything up, you know, with patches and, you know, physically and, and digitally and all these things. And, and, you know, then you perform it in real time. And if something goes wrong, you troubleshoot it like immediately. So it's a terrifying yet amazing background to start in audio uh, by doing something live. Um, because you really understand why things are the way that they are once you kind of go into a, a, a DAW. And so um, that was my first job. That that took me out to L.A. where I started working at uh, NBC doing the same thing, like news, sports, entertainment, live shows. Um, I had a friend there that uh, uh, I knew I wanted to do sound design and post. And uh, she worked over at G4, which was an, uh, an old video game network um, that has now gone away. And it was just packed full of video game content and just... It was really before its time. It would have been amazing. It would have been an amazing YouTube channel now. Um, but we, uh, she put in a good word and said, that, you know, this is the best sound designer that I know. And little did they know that I did not have any full sound design specifically experience. So <laughs> I got over there and I, I just took it and I just, you know, for a week I didn't sleep and I was just, I just figured it out. I stayed late and I was like, I'm going to figure this out right now because I don't, this is my in. Uh, stayed there for a little while. Uh, it was a little sweatshoppy because we were doing f full shows in like half hours and stuff. And it was just um, looking back on it, it was like, oh, it's such a bad uh, workflow and, and white knuckle constantly. But I didn't know any better. Um, 
got my foot in the door. After that, uh, I saw a job open up at the Discovery Channel as a senior sound designer mixer. And uh, that included all of the Discovery networks for uh, Discovery and TLC and Animal Planet and Science Channel and all that. And so um, got that job uh, and, and really like found myself relatively young because I think I was about 26 at the time uh, in, a, in a position that was pretty much a retirement position. It was a very good job doing very good content. Um, so mixing a lot of those shows, reversioning a lot of those shows for different countries, uh, doing a lot of, uh, promos, which are basically commercials that are specific to the network. Um, like watch this show. So that's a promo versus an ad, which is like, you know, a, a tied commercial or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so doing a lot of that stuff, high sound design, um, you know, a lot of important stuff, but, uh, but got a little restless there. I, I loved all those networks. I still work with those, those same networks today. Uh, 10 years after leaving, but, um, but wanted to work with, uh, other networks too. Like I was really into national geographic and, um, I really loved like Bethesda Softworks stuff. They're the developers behind Skyrim and fallout. You know, I wanted to make shows for history channel and, and kind of all these things. So I started kind of doing double duty, starting, uh, doing, mixing some shows kind of on my off time. One thing led to another and it was like, okay, I think that, you know, I'm going to leave this really, really, really good job to do something very dumb and that's to go freelance. And so, uh, I went freelance, started the business in name back then, but essentially it was just me for a couple of years, uh, until it started getting kind of busier and busier. And, uh, and very quickly I was able to kind of like get this one job from national geographic and this other like trailer, um, sound design and mix job from like Bethesda. And then like, kind of the ball started rolling and then with every project and every new, uh, partnership and and collaborator, um, you know, they would go out and tell five of their friends and then we'd have a couple of them come over. And then now the company is about to hit 10 years in a few months. And it's just been this like very organic, slow process. So I look at it now and I'm like, I could never have dreamt to getting to this point in a business. It's, it's far exceeded like my, my expectations for what I was hoping for. And, Um, so I feel really fortunate, but along the way, it's just a very slow process, a very stressful process. Times where there might be months with no income and then a couple months with, with good income and then a couple months with just, you know, medium income. It's a lot of risk, a lot of, a lot of all that stuff, but, uh, you know, kind of along the way, what I really wanted to make was a company that, um, changed the, I don't know, changed the attitude with sound. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, one thing that we we all need to be thinking about a little bit and being in the sound world, um, we can be a, a little blind to how homogenous some of it is. And uh, we need to get new voices into it and we need to have uh, new personalities and, and get people into sound that are not audiophiles and audio engineers because um, the world is not going to care about it if we kind of hoard it to ourselves, you know. And it's like I wanted to make a company that like, when we worked with someone who was like, you know, I don't really know much about sound. So like, I know you're the expert. So you, you know, you just tell me what to do. I'm like, no, you, you are for perfectly, I want your opinion. What do you like? What do you not like? You know, you're, you're just as a, as a, as much as a creative collaborator on this than, than I am. Like, you know, go wild. Tell me like all the stuff that you want. And so, you know, the company I wanted to be was just like very open, very friendly, like very, uh, collaborative, um, start on projects way before finishing. We do a lot of finishing, if you will, but I wanted to be on, on the front end of projects with, with strategy. Um, so we're doing a lot more where it's like strategizing, uh, doing uh, kind of pre-sonic sound design work before clients even see things. And, um, and so it's kind of like turned into a bit of like a, almost like a sound design agency of sorts. Cause there's a lot of consulting almost that happens. And, um, 
and uh, I want to affect projects ahead of time when when sound can affect the projects because if you were if we're relying on all the people who don't really care about sound to affect the 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 project then all we get is their vision for that and so i'm trying to get people more empowered earlier on and getting them excited about sound earlier on and so the whole mission of the company was to do that was to just have a really collaborative open company and and every hire that i've made um along the way has been geared toward that very friendly people very um non-arrogant humble people who are just also have insanity level talents because every person who works here at, at de facto has beat a thousand people to be here. That's really cool. Um, and actually uh, ties in perfectly with the next question I had in mind, which was, so I, I'd like to talk in detail about your workflow at de facto, but just before we get into that, you know, one of the things that struck me looking at the, your show reel on the website is how creative a lot of the stuff that you're doing is. And one that sprang to mind was the advert for Sabian symbols, mm-hmm. um, where for you guys listening, if you haven't seen it yet, I recommend you head over to defactosound.com and check out their, their show reel. But I, I, well, it seems to me like it's kind of the basic concept of the ad is that you hear everything in great detail except the drums <laughs> so there's one point in particular where the drummer like finally brings the sticks crashing down on the cymbals and you don't hear any cymbal sounds you kind of hear this kind of as the as the cymbal vibrates in the air mm-hmm. but you don't hear the actual was was that the concept and yeah uh, and i was curious to know how much input you had in that was that something that they came to you with kind of fully formed or is that something that you cooked up Sabian, I believe that that was, they gave us just a lot of freedom in that. And so, you know, in a, in a situation like that, I think that what we're trying to, to think here is that there's two worlds of, of sonic information. Actually, let's, let's say three. Traditionally, it's been, you know, there's sound design, which kind of encompasses Foley backgrounds and hard effects. And then there's music. And then you tie those two things together. And then that's what makes a soundtrack. The one thing that I've always found missing with that recipe and I've actually never heard anyone use this terminology even like film and television uh, side is that we when we think about sound design we think about four elements of sound design of course we have backgrounds um, that's the wind and and you know walla and and you know just things that tie scenes together like sounds that just kind of drape over scenes we've got foley which is everything you kind of touch with your feet or hands or your cloth movement to make kind of a character out of you can really feel the character moving hard effects uh, that's usually where everything else traditionally goes so that's like something you can generally build out of a sound previously recorded sound uh, library that's like a door slam or an explosion or you know the really slick stuff so in this case if it's like a symbol you know we could we could probably pull that and call that a hard effect but there's a fourth thing that I think is is like um, kind of chronically under um, noticed, and that's the the fourth aspect of this is our emotional effects. Like even in our templates, we have buses for all of these things, and we have a whole bus just for emotional effects. And by emotional effects, I'm meaning things that are not uh, literal to picture. Uh, these are things that are all designed to give to like elicit a feeling. Um, the most extreme version of, the, of this are trailers, which are just full of just like boom hits and bouges and bois and uh, and and cymbal scrapes and like uh, eerie tones and all that stuff. Like none of that stuff is on screen, but it's but it's a hybrid gray area between what the literal things are on screen and music. And so I think that gray area is really the magic area. And a lot of the collaborators and, and over the years, especially even some of the composers, are now trying to stretch their chops into kind of what they would consider sound design. And we stretch our chops into what some people might consider music. 
And I think once you get this overlap um, of, of two, two different sonic brains thinking about this middle ground, you have a lot to work with. And so I think what we found ourselves in is that we're thinking a lot about just like emotional sounds as well. So we're talking about like a symbol um, spot and, um, and like everyone knows what a symbol sounds like. Like, I don't think that we're going to really be able to translate like the real characteristics of like what these symbols feel like through a symbol crash. And so that's sure. That's like a real literal way of doing it. Everyone right now, think of what a symbol crash sounds like there. That's what it sounds like. Okay. That's not that interesting, uh, for, for like a highly stylized spot. And so for us, like what we're trying to pull out of a lot of stuff is like, how do we give like elicit like a feeling from things? Like, what do you feel like when you play this? And, um, you know, what are these, I don't know, vibrations or like what, you know, it's a very organic like thing that's even hard to put a finger on. And so we're experimenting with stuff like that. And, um, and a lot of our work, uh, you know, whether it be kind of airy type of design or like very tonal type of design, um, that's really what brings this like magic to it. Um, you know, Foley is an art form unto itself, uh, but it's really like an art form focused on like hyper accuracy and perfection. Also recording technique, of course, uh, sound design, which is usually kind of like the sound designer's job, um, to, to really pick all these sound effects and all that stuff. And they'll, they'll put emotional effects in there too. And then you've got your sound editors like cutting backgrounds and, and stuff like that. Um, but I just see the whole process as like a singular process. Like I see sound design and mixing all in a singular world. And we can conveniently do that because we're working on short form where a lot of people are working on long form and you need larger teams for that. Um, so I think that when you hear some of our work and with our collaborators, it feels and it sounds fresh because like it's a different approach than what's traditional. It usually starts with a conversation between sound designers. Another thing that's great about our company is like we just talk about things ahead of time. You know, there might be a single sound designer that does the bulk of the work, but the rest of the team will review it in detail and leave tons of notes and we'll have conversations about every project. Um, and then it might come to me and I might say, well, why don't you try this or carve this out or we're losing some stuff here. And, you know, I see what you're doing here, but I think you could be more effective doing this. So our company goes through just like countless rounds of notes internally before anyone ever sees it externally. And then we pass that to the collaborator. Hopefully they love it and hopefully they come back with even more notes because we want to maximize this for everything. And, um, and yeah, just, just being really open and like kind and like, I'm not worried when people give us a bunch of notes. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't get offended by it. I think I used to, I think it was like painful. Like you get a bunch of notes and you're like, Oh, I'm a failure. And it's just like, uh, no, that's not the way that the world works. But if you can kind of take notes and go, Oh wow. Okay. I totally get where you're coming from here. Um, you know, what we do is kind of a first thing. So I don't know. We think a lot about feeling and like, um, being like visceral, stuff like where can we put sonic information in a place that's not traditional um yeah so i think that that's that's kind of the mindset that we have on most things especially if it's highly stylized and not all projects are highly stylized um there's straight projects that will just mix mix and stuff and they have a very clear vision um but on something like the sabian one and a, and a good handful of stuff we have on the the website even our car spots are very visceral, even though they are engines and stuff, but they're very designed um, and, and crafted to kind of make them sound that way. Yeah, I, I love the, uh, the one for the Tesla Ghost. Um, yeah. Which, that, that was going to be another question. Um, I was interested to know how much you are given to begin with, typically. Um, like, I mean, you might have some location sound, I guess, but quite often that's replaced. And you said that you get, the, you know, the music is, you work with partners to get the music, or maybe somebody supplies you with the music. But I was kind of watching that Tesla one and going, I can almost imagine that maybe there was no audio on this footage 
to begin with? What, what, what's kind of typical or is there no typical? Is everything different? So there's no typical, but the one thing that I will say that, 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 has, that produces the best results is when everyone feels like they have a seat at the table with sound design. Um, a lot of times uh, people will ask, uh, okay, we're doing this video and it's going to be super stylized or whatever. Do you want us to just like not touch it and you can do your magic? And I'm the opposite. I'm like, no, throw your vision at it. Like I can get where you're going with things and where you're thinking and you need sound design for pacing and, and to kind of understand a holistic approach and then, you know, throw it over to us. We'll, we'll attack it with a bunch of things, toss it back over to you. You might even make picture changes based off of what we did. And then we very organically back and forth. But the one thing that I will say is the best sound design stuff that we put on our site uh, come from editors and directors and producers and writers who already love sound. And so uh, we, we very much kind of like found ourselves in this really beautiful place where like all the people, most everyone we work with um, have a real heart for sound design. And so that Tesla one in particular is a, is a director named Salomon Lighelm. And uh, we've worked with him quite a bit. And he's kind of this just like brilliant guy who, you know, if he wanted to be a full-time composer, he would be a full-time composer and very successful because he's an incredible composer. If he wanted to be a full-time sound designer, he could be that because he's incredible in, in the way he thinks about sound. Um, if he wanted to be a cinematographer, but you know, all of these things, uh, led him to be a director and to, to, you know, in a lot of senses, he could almost be the best one in the room at every craft and, um, and sound, he brings so much to sound. Uh, and in that one in particular, I don't think it sounds anything like what he, he sent to us, but he loves just throwing stuff at it. And just, just to put it, just to know that like, you don't have to be super literal here. Like we're going to put like radio chatter in random places that don't even make sense because I want to feel all this stuff. So if you even kind of see a pattern in his work, there's another one on our site that's like Puma uh, another short film we did with him called Anomaly. Uh, it's very like adventurous sound design, like very refreshing. It's it's daunting because it's a lot of work because it's so subjective. But when it's when it's done, it's like it's so like fresh and new and like unlike a type of sound design that you've heard before. That um that is just fun to work on. Um and so he brings so much to the table. So we'll get a cut and it's like he'll throw all the sound in it. And and a lot of times what we hear is it it sounds unfocused. Like that's usually what I get. It sounds like a lot of, a lot of noise. Um, and, and, but I kind of know how his brain works and it's like, he wants the scatteredness, but he, he wants a lot more clarity in that scatter. So we're, we're in, we're parsing things out. We're replacing a lot of things. We're enhancing things. I'm, I'm trying to convince him if there's something's too much to try to give a little bit of an arc. Um, you know, maybe we do a little less here, a little more here, try this different thing here, but it's a really, really healthy, uh, back and forth. And, um, more and more of the people that we work with are kind of, getting on that it's okay to go back and forth and back and forth thing. And that sound isn't just this last process that you, that you just present and then you're done. It's really interesting because the anomaly uh, film is another one that leapt out of me. So it's fascinating to find that they're, they're the same director. Is that's the one with this, uh, there's like a string ostinato at the beginning, isn't there? That kind of mm -hmm. fits in rhythmically with the way that it did. So was that his music there that was used then? That was Ryan Talbert incredible composer, like incredible, most just incredibly versatile too. Um, Brian Talbert is, is exactly who I had in my mind when I was talking about composers that stretch into sound design, uh, paired with a sound design team that stretches into music. Um, and there's so much like beautiful crossover where you have so many options to work with, uh, on the sonic palette. And, uh, and yeah, Brian Talbert's work's incredible. I would highly recommend checking that stuff out, but he, he did the score for, uh, anomaly and also a handful of other things on the site. So you mentioned there about, I mean, those, examples are kind of 
yeah, there's, they're, it's, they're hugely layered and they're hugely detailed. And I mean, another thing that's impressed me about um, the work on the on the site is the is the attention to detail. It's it's obvious that everything has been thought about. Um, but I know from having worked on some audiobook productions, dramatized audiobook productions, that often it's as much about what you leave out as what you put in. And you mentioned there that kind of one of the note kind of uh, parts of the note-taking process for you might be where you get back to somebody and say, actually, I think we need to make space for something here. Do you kind of have any rules of thumb for that kind of that balancing act? Or is it an instinct thing? Or how do you work that? The more you pile something on, like if you think of it this way, if you just keep adding, you know, like I'm, I'm going to see if I can prompt you. So we have a thing, but then we add another thing to it. Then we add another sound, then another sound, then another sound. If we did that in, to infinity, what do we come What do we get? Uh, white noise. White noise, exactly. And there's all kinds of gray area between white noise. And so uh, that's the thing that I'm thinking about all the time is clarity. Like, are there frequencies and noises piling up on each other to the point where you can't even understand, like, the creative uh, sonic element that's there? And so in order to make something like a sound design element sell, you have to remove other things that's in the way. Sure, they might sound great by themselves, but, like, there's there's a there's a bit of a theory, especially even if you're like learning film sound. I, I did a lot of classes early on with uh, great film sound designers and stuff, and they were um, kind of showing you how you can layer all these sounds on top of each other to make a single sound, and that's awesome. And if you can do that, that that's amazing. And I, you know, we still do that. We'll have to layer you know 14 sounds together just to make one good perfect sound. And so there's time and place for that. But in the level of complication, as sound designers, we often uh, get too reliant on we need a billion sounds to make a good sound rather than what sounds good to begin with. And so uh, we've tried to really, over the past few years, find the right sounds first rather than relying on creating it from a bunch of wrong sounds. Dialogue is always king. Like the human voice almost always uh, is the key element to a soundtrack um, because of that communication aspect. Uh, the other big thing that's extraordinarily difficult to get right are backgrounds, um, mainly because a lot of backgrounds and winds and things were kind of poorly recorded to begin with, but we kind of accept them to give you an example. There's a lot of like 30 second to 60 second spots, uh, with a lot of, uh, you know, think of like a spot where it's kind of like cut, cut, cut. Maybe we're looking at different scenes outside. We have like you know, a wheat field and then we have like the city and then we have like, um, you know, a train and then we have like this. And so we're cutting, cutting, cutting. Um, the thing that I'm always thinking about in this is like ultra texture. So what I'll hear from, from kind of like the very standard level sound design is the sound design will sound just like this. It'll go like that's sound design. <laughs> and it's just basically a bunch of noise without anything what we're always aiming for is like ultra clarity on everything, like ultra low no noise floor, like ultra clean. Um, there's an argument to be made that this is a very American style of mixing too, um, which I'd love to talk about. So what I'm going for is like, if I see a scene with wind, I don't want the wind to sound like, I want the sound, the, the wind to sound like, like very clear. Like that is very textured and very focused. Mm -hmm. Um, if I hear a train go by or something, if you think of public transport or something and a train goes by, what traditionally you'll find if you just go to free sound effects or just grab the first thing you find is it'll sound like this. It'll go like that. 
But what I want to gear here is just like the gears and like the like I just want to hear the the meat of detail without any noise at all. Now our our world is filled with noise and white noise, but I just want none of it because it just creates just ultra clean clarity. You know, one thing that I that I've been thinking a lot about now is kind of like the difference between um, kind of an American style of mixing and a British style of mixing. Typically, mm-hmm. we do a lot of trailers for for shows that are uh, that are um, UK based, and then then we'll do a lot of trailers for things that are like US based. So we'll have kind of like the final mixes of these things in some cases, and sometimes we'll have the raw. Like what I've found, and I don't know if there's a lot of merit to this, but uh, but I'm just going to throw it out there anyway. Um, over in like like the British style that I find is that the almost like the production sound mixer is also is is kind of more involved in the mix process. And what I mean by that is that you'll have um, dialogue, and if they're like in a in a big hollow room or something, and they're on the other side of the room, like they'll kind of mic it like that. So what they get at the end is like you hear the room with the scene. Like the the production is is purposefully trying to capture kind of the room and and be a more like natural placement. Whereas in the U.S., um, what you get is at all all time dry, ultra clean absolutely nothing else dialogue. You want the mic to be as close as possible. You want that extra hidden mic. You want your soundtrack to be nothing but voice and you want it to be as close up as possible. And then it all gets processed from that point. Um, I've noticed just over the years that I very much prefer the like ultra, ultra dry. That could be directly different to what somebody, another mixing style might be. I like it as a sound designer because every little piece starts to starts to click like if i'm in a big hollow room i can just remove that room and 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 focus things uh, more and more intentionally but if i want to just let that room sing a little bit more and kind of add that it's it's really interesting you say that because actually there have been some minor controversies here in the uk about the the sound on some bbc dramas people have been complaining that they couldn't hear what was being said and i think there's kind of two factors to that there's really really naturalistic acting where people you know actually mumble quite a lot and speak indistinctly that means that it's harder to understand what they're saying and then that's combined with i mean there was one i forget which tv series it was from but somebody uh asked me about it and i kind of went in and had a listen to it and it was exactly that they were in a it was a pub an, an old pub i think it was a period drama maybe and they it was just a big echoey room and it was kind of you had this boomy room sound in there combined with the fact that if it was me, I'd have put in a little bit more EQ at the top end of the vocals just to enhance the clarity bit, combined with the fact that the actors were mumbling. And it just presented something that was really difficult for some people to understand. And it probably sounded great in an edit suite yeah. on a super hi-fi system, but you end up putting that through a TV with typically crappy speakers. Um and it's much more difficult to kind of pick up on what's being said. So that's kind of one end of the, the spectrum. On the other hand, I prefer things to be personally to be more like that than to be super dry because I sometimes find the super dry thing just doesn't feel realistic to me. You know, it kind of, even if the the dialogue wasn't um, ADR afterwards, I feel like maybe it has, the dialogue has been replaced mm-hmm. and it, it's almost kind of too clinical and not sufficiently atmospheric. But I mean, what, from what you're saying, you'd like the flexibility, right? You're basically asking for the option for you to choose in the mix am I going to have this super dry or am I going to have some ambience in there or not rather than just, well, that's what it is and I have to deal with it. 
Yeah, exactly what you said with all of that is exactly what, what I kind of experience as well. A lot of stuff that I that we get from uh, from the UK um, being recorded is um, very roomy, but I think it's not roomy because they're not they're not good. I think it's because it's a stylistic choice. And like, like you just said, uh, I don't ever want to hear ADR. Like I never want to pick that out. Like uh, if I hear, if I notice something's ADR, it automatically comes across as cheap. But I, I personally love ultra dry, clean uh, vocals because it sounds really intimate. But what's interesting is I think that you and I have a very good perspective on this because you probably grew up with a production and with an ear that was very um, in tune with like the natural room and spaces than in recording. And there's nothing wrong with that style. But then my ear has always been this like very ultra dry, um, non-roomy American type of sound. And just recently, I've just found that really fascinating that I think that we hear mixes in different ways. Like I'd love to kind of just sit in on a, on, you know, a, a mixer uh, in, in UK, like just doing something and just kind of think about, see, see like what their thoughts are too. Even between our countries, we'll see a different mix style. And it's something that I'm noticing kind of more and more every year. I think, you know, one of my favorite ever radio programs is the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy mm-hmm. um and that's kind of fascinating because the original two series were recorded back in the 80s mostly um and then nothing else was done and douglas adams went off and wrote books and there was film scripts going around all the rest of it and then tragically he died and they then did new radio dramatizations of the the three books that he'd written that had new material that wasn't in the originals I saw uh, maybe a video or listened to a a documentary or something about the recording process for that. And they mentioned specifically that they were using binaural microphone techniques. So rather than each actor being on their own mic, at least some of the time in some situations, they would have like a little mock-up of the situation in the studio and the actors would be moving around the mics um, in real time. And, you know, I mean, binaural is kind of like stereo plus, you know, that kind of amazing three-dimensional quality. So... Yeah, I mean, that's a kind of completely different way of working. And I hadn't picked that out in terms of US versus UK before. But interestingly, my wife and I just started watching the new series of The uh, Handmaid's Tale. And there were a couple of points in that where I felt actually I wasn't hearing that kind of really clean, crisp dialogue that you're talking about. And there was a little bit of a kind of, how, what did he say? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That I've learned to expect from some uh, UK dramas. So I don't know whether maybe that's some cross-pollination or maybe there's some Brits working on the the sound crew there. It'd be interesting to know. The other thing to think about in this whole thing is that, that um, the radio drama culture in the UK is, is light years beyond the U S we've had um, very early on. We had, we kind of had radio dramas, but as soon as the television came out, they all died. And so we haven't had any sense, really. Uh, now with podcasts, we're getting a lot of fiction podcasts, but still it seems like such a foreign concept here in the U.S. to have like a fiction uh, sound designed podcast. Whereas in the U.K., like I think lots of people grew up. I think, uh, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Doctor Who was a radio drama or maybe still is. I don't know. It's, it's It started out as TV, but there have been radio dramatizations and there are there are kind of continual dramatized audio versions, yeah, of, of stories that were never on TV and and... Um, all the rest of it. So there's a sonic culture in the UK that's different. And I think that with that approach where in the, in the studio and, and radio and stuff, like you want to worldize a lot of that stuff. And so if you, if you make that argument, then why wouldn't you accurately worldize what we're actually seeing too? So I think that it just, it just has to do with like a cultural, like the way that, that everyone grew up and the way that you heard things on the radio and television and 
having a lot of government funded type of uh, creative content and stuff. I, I think it's just a cultural thing that also feeds into the way that they, the things sound uh, versus what you get in the U.S. It's really interesting. And it actually makes sense of um, I don't know whether you're aware of the Gimlet show Homecoming. I am. Um, which is I was sure you would be. Um, I mean, I love that. Yeah. Um, and they did a little kind of series of making of things that went at the end of each episode and were, were really excited and talking about this fact that this was a whole new kind of audio drama. <laughs> and I was listening going, well, no, it's not. Exactly. <laughs> I hit this on the radio all the time. I mean, there were all <laughs> kinds of stuff that were innovative about that series, you know, like the conversations entirely on telephones and, and all, all this kind of stuff. So, so even it was kind of a step beyond maybe what I, in terms of the naturalistic presentation and the world building that you're talking about. But yeah, it just made me kind of laugh. But now that makes perfect sense hearing what you're saying. That whole culture of radio drama never really happened in the US or, or, or stopped. Exactly. Yeah. That's such a shame. Okay, right. So this is the mastering show and we haven't talked about anything to do with mastering yet. Um, I think one reason for that is possibly, I think I'm right in saying that there isn't really a mastering stage so much for broadcast typically. Uh, you have the dub, where which is kind of like the mix and the mastering stage combined because you're creating the final soundtrack to picture and once that's everybody's happy with it it's done and dusted is that accurate pretty much yeah so uh we have all of these elements in a big pile uh we do get music provided uh personally i don't love things i, I get the question when music is provided should that be mastered and uh, then I basically explain, like, the point of mastering. You know, it, it needs to fit in place with a lot of other things, and, and there's a lot of concerns and, and volume concerns and all of this stuff. Uh, I am sure I'm talking to a lot of experts on this subject, so I'll keep it as vague as possible. Um, generally, I don't want things to be, like, overly squashed or anything, and please forgive me for saying that. I, I know that there's probably a bunch of people cringing and going, I don't overly squash, squash everything. Um, but I, but, uh, generally when someone says, do I need to master this? What they're saying is, do I need to put a big old fat limiter on everything? And I'm like, no, please don't <laughs> like, don't do that. And we do work with a lot of pop tracks too. So we get kind of stuck with that. Um, with the, uh, soundtracks though, we need, uh, we need space. Well, we, what we do with the sa with the music, oftentimes we get splits of things. Um, so all of these splits should equal roughly what the full mix is on things. Um, now, if someone goes and then takes these these series of, of tracks and then goes to put it on an album, I do believe that mastering is is critical in a in a phase and for enjoyment of of just it in in the in the circumstances. But we want things to be a little less processed. If we need to limit it or if we need to boost uh, low end, which we do a lot, or or, or craft things, we want to have the flexibility to do that. So um, so with all these elements, and so we've got the we've got the voice elements, we've got those handful of sound design elements, and, and we have the music elements, and we could be mixing in 5.1, or we could be mixing most likely in stereo, um, which is still the vast majority of content, at least in our world. But the actual process is uh, much more based on a relative level. So over here, we have an, an, a negative 24... LKFS uh, level that we're, that's kind of like the, the industry standard for where things need to go. And that means that from the beginning of the content to the end of the content need to average at negative 24 plus or minus one decibel, which I suspect for anyone who's mastering would be very low in general. We also come from an analog world. Uh, everything's digital now, but we come from an analog world where um, things used to have to be capped at negative, negative 10 completely, like nothing could go over it because we didn't want to mess with all the analog uh, equipment. 
but since then, uh, now that cap has gone away, so we can be a little bit more dynamic. Um, we do have this, this, we have to kind of measure it at this. So we, we generally put like a cap on it, like a, and by cap, I mean a limiter, uh, at like negative two. But there's still problems in the way that our standards have been uh, presented. So we're kind of forced into a into a box where like, God, there's so many complications with this. Like, um, hmm. so so basically, we have to just deliver things where things are negative twenty four. And so the complications that have here that we have here is if we slam the super lows and the mids uh, pretty hard because something calls for it, that will eat up all of our meters, and then we have to turn the dialogue way, 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 way down to be able to get to negative 24, and then you put that to air or on the internet or wherever it's going to play, and the dialogue sounds super, super quiet. The whole spot sounds super, super quiet. So we're very much in a box where we have to hit negative 24, but we have to be really strategically about the way we use frequencies. Personally, I feel like the negative 24 overall standard is the wrong standard to be using, and I would love to, to change that personally. Uh, I think that the right standard is a dial norm, like what, what, what we had about uh, 15 years ago. And that's where you measure your dialogue only at negative 24, and then you mix everything around that to taste. I believe that Netflix just adopted that standard. So that's, that's amazing news. So if we're doing a giant, enormous, epic trailer, we kind of have to bust the uh, specs or, or we have to stretch the specs as far as humanly possible to make it work and actually be pretty epic. So yeah, so that we're, we're much more on like this relative level, uh, in a, in a perfect world, what we're going to do is our, our dialogue, like just land right at negative 24. And then we're just in a calibrated room where, ne- where, di- where the dialogue at negative 24 sounds comfortable. And then everything around that is just a mix to taste. Um, that's really like the, the gold standard of mixing. Um, Films uh, go even a step further where they're in a calibrated room and then they mix the entirety to taste. So that's kind of like how we do that. I mean, we definitely uh, more specifically on the dialogue. Uh, I, I we put a com- I put a compressor on the bus specifically to where all of my dialogue is pushing into a bus because because the reason of that is like I want to be able to push the ends of phrases. Most normal people and actors and stuff kind of trail off at the end of their words. So we, we're oftentimes pushing up the ends of phrases to make it clean and, and, and audible. And I don't want that to be uncompressed. So I push that into a compressor. And if I feel like it's being compressed a, a little bit too much, I just push the bus up a little bit and gives me a little bit of, of that. And so there's almost like a mastering chain on everything. So there's like almost like its own little mastering chain on dialogue. On the tracks, we'll put EQ and uh, we'll automate all the EQ to make sure that every, every uh, you know, scene and all that stuff is is properly EQ'd. Um, but then we typically put, once we go to the, uh, the bus, the dialogue bus, um, I believe that the first thing that we have is usually a roll off, um, ultra low roll off, probably like 60 to 80 Hertz, everything below that's gone. Cause that's information that's never needed in dialogue. So we mm-hmm. cut that. I will say that usually we've processed already a lot of the noise issues or pops and clicks. We've processed that already into the audio and we keep a copy of the original in a playlist. And the next thing on our bus after the the, the low end roll off is we'll have a um, typically a, a Waves WNS or something like a Cedar uh, noise reduction. This is a real time noise reduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, kind of to throw it back to that American style of mixing. What we're what I'm always looking for is the absolute driest, cleanest dialogue ever. Um, <laughs> but I can always pull back on it if I need to. And then um, after that is usually a de-esser because S's are. Uh, Microphones nowadays just have, are, are real S-y, so we want to we ta- get down those S's, because S's 
project in ways that are unnatural uh, when a microphone picks it up. And then the last phase in that dialogue chain is usually a, a compressor um, that I believe has something like a negative 12 input uh, or when it starts to, to go into effect, um, three to one ratio, the ultra fast attack. And because we don't, I don't want any, um, anything to pop through. Some people d uh, do a double compression scheme like in post where they'll have one just for fast attacks, one for slow attacks. I personally don't love that, um, but I, I respect, you know, anybody who does that. Uh, then super fast attack. Cause I want all those, those transients to be hit. Uh, the attenuation on that is, uh, pretty much always between three and six decibels. And so I'm kind of, I'm kind of always watching the attenuation on that. I never really go back past six when it taps six. It's usually like a very fast attack, but most of the time it's like bouncing around like a negative three compression with like an occasional tap to, to negative six, um, attenuation that is. So that's generally the uh, dialogue chain. And a lot of time, and, and I put fingers on the fader and we push into the dialogue um, compressor and I'm watching the compressor all the time and all that stuff. And I need a little bit more volume. I'll push that, that bus up uh, a little bit. So kind of a little bit of, of that. So that's, that's kind of like the dialogue. We don't call it mastering at all in post, but, um, but if you were looking at it from a mastering engineer, it's almost like we have this mastering chain on dialogue. And again, to, to toss it back to what I said before, like dialogue is almost always king. In, in anything mm. that we do. Everything wraps around the dialogue. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting all the parallels with music, various things you've been saying over the time we've been talking. It's, you know, like, I mean, the vocal is is the thing in music as well, um, yeah. for obvious reasons. It, you know, that's, it's kind of everything. You take everything else away and you've still got the song in the, vo in the voice. Um, and fader rides and compression and, and kind of balancing everything around the vocal um, and even kind of going back to, you know, making space in the mix for things you know, you, you do the same thing when you're mixing music. It's like you can't have, uh, you know, a wall of guitars and a wall of synths and a wall of drums yeah. and a wall of backing vocals and all the rest of it. Um, it's interesting what you're saying about the the mastering levels. I wonder whether that's because you're working a lot on short form content, um, because I've heard kind of people say almost the exact opposite, which is that they like the minus twenty four standard because they they calibrate the mon the monitoring to minus twenty four, and then you can almost ignore the meters because you just makes everything to sound natural and it just all falls into place. In particular, if you're doing trailers, I can imagine, you know, if you have a trailer where the cut is boom, 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 you know, a, a huge action film, there is, you know, in, in a, in a full length feature film or even a sort of a half hour drama or whatever, there are going to be long periods where, you know, there's nothing but crickets and two people talking quietly, um, yeah. which will bring your average level down. But if you've got a trailer, and you want to hit it all the way through, I can see that that would be a problem. Do you think that's, that's true or have you found it with long form stuff as well? That, okay. So here's, here's exactly where that's true and where it, where it's not great. So if I'm mixing a documentary, a negative 24 all day long, it just sits, it's beautiful. It's perfect all the time. Like negative 24, it's, it's wonderful. If I'm doing anything that's relatively tame, negative 24 does the job. So it makes sense why a lot of like TV networks that does reality shows or, or documentaries and things like that love the negative 24 standard, um, and long form in general, like long form is great for negative 24 because you can, you can make your other aspects quieter to make up for the loud parts where the entire negative 24 standard breaks down is on trailers and on short form content. Cause we have 30 seconds or 60 seconds to make the biggest impact possible. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine like just the, your natural trailer form, everything is huge. Everything is low indie. Everything is epic. If everything is loud, 
what we find is that all of the sound effects are eating up the meters the whole time. We don't have any balance on the, on the flip side. And so we have to tighten up the dynamic range to make that happen. We have to pop out higher frequencies that maybe we don't quite want to do that. Because if we just mix it to taste, like what will happen is we will mix it to taste in the exact same room and the exact same calibration of, a, of say, a documentary or, or a long-form piece. We'll mix it to taste. And naturally, we're going to push it harder, whatever. We're going to, in the same calibrated room, that trailer is going to be like negative 18, like negative 16, like super loud. But the dialogue between that documentary we just mixed and that trailer are the exact same volume. Um, so they work calibrated together very, very uh, appropriately. But the problem is, is because there's so many booms, hits, and no low volume stuff, it, it naturally shoots the trailer numbers up by like six decibels, seven uh, naturally. So if you kind of flip this, you reverse this and you go, okay, well, if you need to get that back down at a spec, well, what happens to your dialogue? It just drops by six, seven, eight de decibels. And you play these two things that are negative 24 back to back and you have an, an ultra, ultra quiet trailer with a very present, um, you know, documentary or, or piece of whatever. Mm. So the key is here is like if we had dial norm and all dialogue all the time was, was set to the same standard, then it solves so many problems. I noticed this on Game of Thrones just when, uh, when watching the show. And uh, I'm very hyper aware that if Game of Thrones starts and it's quiet, like ultra quiet from the, from the trailer, like you play a you know, tra trailer or preview, and then the show starts quietly and I have to turn it way up, I immediately will be like, oh, there's a big battle scene here. Because they're trying to uh, get all of this this quiet stuff in while they can, and then it gets really loud. Um, but if a, but if a, if the show just starts out and it's kind of like present volume, then I know that it's kind of a chill episode. And so it's just a wonky system. Like I just think we need like a dialogue standard where all dialogue kind of lands at the exact same spot, and then everything else is to taste. And I think we're gonna get there. Um, that's that's kind of my biggest biggest mission in life is to like you know, kind of crush that. But even over here in the U S like even to get commercials to be lower in vol in volume, Congress had to step in and, and like mm. pass a law. Like that's how far and it's how, how out of control like audio levels are, uh, yeah, in our world. Absolutely. We talk a lot about the, the loudness wars in music, uh, on, on the show. It's a, you know, it's kind of a major topic in, in music mastering. Um, and it's interesting there hearing you kind of say, and it gets insanely loud, like minus 16 or minus 18. Because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you said you said rightly that for music mastering, minus 24 is, is super low. But yeah, I mean, music, I would typically, you know, if you're kind of minus 12, that's that's pretty, that's a healthy, loud song. But there's stuff out there that's being mastered to minus four or minus three mm -hmm. LKFS, which is insane. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just a little interesting tangent for, because I this is something I get asked a lot. Dallas mentioned there about kind of not whacking anything you're going to supply for broadcast through a huge limiter. And I completely agree with that. My personal advice, if you're mastering music that you know is going to go to broadcast, maybe it's going to be used in a, in a TV show or somebody's going to use it in a video, is to just master it as you normally would following the, the tasteful guidelines that I, I've talked about often. In particular, don't go for those super loud loudness war um, levels. I mean, you, you can, but they just will get turned down as part of the mix because the whole thing as dallas is saying has to come in at minus 24 so you deliver something at minus four it's going to get turned down by 20 dbs um so it's just it's a kind of a waste of uh of space really um you know you've, you've got more room to work with in terms of, of broadcast and it's also interesting just that the parallels that you know the kind of problems that you're talking about there with 
the averaging system of the of the levels. I'm actually working with the the AES um, on recommendations for streaming loudness for for things like podcasts and video on demand and all the rest of it. Um, and we're trying to figure out what's the best target volume to recommend and is that going to work for people artistically and practically? And at the one end, you've got you know people concerned about stuff needing to be audible in noisy environments, and then at the other end, you've got people who just want the art to be as good as it can possibly be. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think it's an evolving situation, and and it's 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 just going to get better. But um, there's no question; it's really really confusing for everybody at the moment because we're in this kind of transition period. I so strongly feel like dial norm is is the way to go. Um, because that's really whatever, that's the king, you know, that's what people are listening to. And if we have mm. a consistent dialogue level and you can still wiggle around that, you know, you can go a little low, you can go a little high, but like generally if you leave your volume at a certain place, uh, dialogue is going to always be present at a, at a consistent volume, at least for picture or broadcast. Um, uh, and even check web is, is a dialogue normalization standard. Uh, where uh, dialogue plus calibrated room standards um, to where um, there, there's there's a checks and balances because if you have dialogue, that's a check. You know, uh, dialogue should sound, should sound consistent on any network or any channel or YouTube channel or whatever. If you just start playing and never stop, it should always dialogue should be in the same spot. The balance on that is a calibrated room suggestion. So when you have your room calibrated to this volume, then it should feel comfortable. Like if it sounds loud to your ears or your room is starting to push. Uh, decibel levels that on your decibel meter show as being unhealthy loud uh, on a consistent volume, then that should be uh, more, I don't know, turned down or whatever. But that doesn't mean that we don't have explosions. That doesn't mean that we don't have big hits. That doesn't mean we don't have quiet parts. But if we can have a consistency in dialogue, like everything can root around that. That's that's my opinion on that. Yeah, no, I, I see that. And it's, it's another interesting parallel with music because often when I'm mastering an album, uh, if you have songs that are very, very different in terms of arrangement and style... I will tend to use the vocal as my guide. So I'll tend to have a reasonably consistent yeah. vocal level through the album and then everything else can work around it. I think the problem with it, I mean, we don't need to get into this as a huge tangent, but the the, the, <laughs> the problem with that approach is you, you rely on people following the guidelines because you can say, okay, well, my dialogue is here and, oh, this is all really, really super loud. So I followed the spec, but actually the overall thing is uncomfortably loud. I mean, I've actually experienced that in cinemas one that springs to mind is The Mummy Returns. I just remember going to that film and ending up having to stick tissue paper in my ears because the whole thing was just so loud. Yeah. Um, and, and it was just some... So either that was a mistake or somebody had deliberately decided, okay, we're just going to push the the envelope on, on, the, on the guidelines or the... And of course, you know, I mean, you mentioned the ads, that the reason that Congress got involved in the US is because listeners were complaining that the ads were super, super loud and it, that was a problem. So it is this constant kind of balancing act between the the artistic ideal and then some kind of level of enforcement because some people are going to abuse the the standards that are in place so it's it's a tough nut to crack it's a catch 22 and this is why i want people to be really uh, care about audio the reason that you had to stick your tissue paper in the in your ears is because that theater was probably actually calibrated correctly and what i mean by that is that directors are mixing their stuff very hot because so many theaters turned down the volumes because of complaints and all that stuff. And it gets so absurd that we're doing these like arbitrary numbers that they'll go, I just want the, the, it to be hot. So in case the theaters turn down, like it'll, it'll be more present. And if the theaters actually calibrated, you know what? It's cool to be loud. Everyone loves loud music, all this stuff, which I hate. Um, <laughs> then, then it'll just be loud. So I'd rather it be too loud than too quiet. So they mix the films louder because of the problems of, of, um, you know, some, 
kid that's running a theater doesn't care the you, somebody says turn it down they turn it down it stays that way forever and now you have an uncalibrated uh, room but if everyone cared about sound every theater in the entire world would be perfectly calibrated and no one would ever touch it and every director would mix with the exact same volume and so it's not necessarily the director's fault it's not necessarily the uh you know the theater's fault it's just this fight and push and pull back and forth of this lack of knowledge of of calibration levels and it's very simple like if we just calibrate all of our rooms and say don't ever touch it put a lock on it like when it's it's calibrated don't touch it um but you know will we get there who knows i don't know um <laughs> i mean i i've seen some christopher nolan movies i know that they are like those movies are notorious for being mixed loud for that exact reason so it's a yeah a lot of, lot of weird cultural political things that go on behind the scenes that, uh, that it's very easy to blame a director for, uh, but there's a lot of complications that happen between them and, and you and, uh, and a lot of blind spots. And if, for example, this is a great example too. I've, I've, I'll see this on Twitter, like, you know, big film, Marvel film or whatever, like someone will rant on Twitter, like, how could you possibly mix it this way? I could barely hear the dialogue, you know, like to a director or something. And I'm like, I bet your center speaker was turned down. You know, it's like, that's all it takes is like a kid being in the back of the screen and bumping into it and then hitting a knob. And then the whole center channel is now, is now, uh, uh, your, your sole dialogue source for an entire film and every film that ever plays in that theater. But we don't think about the process. We just think, Oh, it must've been the mix, the like mixers fault. Like the mixer did this wrong or like the director did this wrong. And it's like, there's so many variables that they have to deal with. So yeah, that's frustrating. I'm glad that this is one of the reasons I like, I, I like working in ads, uh, <laughs> because especially when we're working in stereo mostly just because, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of things that go wrong in 5.1 and, and Atmos and all of these more intense, uh, setups. Yeah, absolutely. Now I want to talk about the, the podcast, um, in a minute, but just very briefly, cause I know people listening will be interested. I mean, you mentioned that you have this, this whole different range of deliverables that you have to supply but typically if you're if you're doing say the soundtrack for an ad or a trailer it's a stereo file and that's that's it or do you do you provide stems or splits of that for somebody further down the the street oh absolutely everything that we've uh, ever touched in the history of of the company uh, uh all the splits are provided so what you know and anything that we've ever worked on we've got um stereo mix you know uh what you hear and then we have underneath that a mix minus so that's usually mix minus voiceover, traditionally. Um, some mix minuses uh, would also uh, technically include the dialogue, but that's not really the case. So mix minus voiceover. Um, then we have uh, an M and E. So it's music and effects, which solve the problem of, of dialogue. Just music. It could be dipped or undipped based off of fader movements for, for dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have sound effects. That could also be split out among four you know, four or more different sub, um, splits. Like if we have, you know, a mechanical car, like we might have a, just a split for just that. Um, then we have our, uh, dialogue only. This is more on set on camera type of dialogue. Then we have voiceover only, um, voiceover by itself. Um, and then we might have a mono mix. Uh, oftentimes we're not doing those, uh, as much as we used to. But the point of those is because a lot of these ads and trailers and promos and, and even documentaries and things have a life beyond what we're just mixing for here. Like we do the core creative and then it goes on and has a complete life unto itself. Uh, one of the jobs that I did at Discovery before starting the company was remixing a lot of the Discovery shows, the American shows specifically for the UK. And so what we would do with a show like Mythbusters is 
we would remove, like we would use the splits that was provided by the core creative team. We would cut in a brand new uh, British narrator um, mm-hmm. that has his own style completely. Uh, we would cut the American narrator. There would be different minor word changes. Like if they're trying to sell a joke, like sometimes the joke would lo- would not land uh, in the UK that would land in, in the US and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so this is called localization, um, and, and, uh, or, or reversioning something, uh, where you're doing it in all these different languages. And that's, and so that's just to like, kind of make sure that every piece of content has like feels a cultural uh, connection. And that's all, all that magic's done in audio. The visual, Mm -hmm. the visual departments do have different deliverables too, but typically theirs are texted and textless. So they may have a clean video where they don't have lower thirds or text on the screen or, or graphics that have text on it. And then they'll give you a version that's like for America. That's like, has all the American words and all that stuff. Cause they'll go in and put like German words on top of stuff. Same thing happens in audio. The real magic happens in audio, in my opinion, where you can read, you can do entirely new languages, entirely new narrators. That also happens in video games. Like we have a, um, I believe we have our, still have this on the website. We have a, uh, almost all of the, the biggest trailers that we've worked on. We mix it in English, but we also mix it in four, five, six, seven different languages. I think it's called, uh, it's like French, Italian, uh, German, Spanish, Japanese, uh, Russian, English. And sometimes we'll have an, a, an American English and a, and a British English. Uh, forgive me for my terminology. I, 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 I've, I know that there's like a, there's a wrong terminology between saying the UK and British. So I, I can't remember what's bad. That. Okay, so all of the people who are listening on that side, uh, forgive my like ignorance on that uh, that grammar. Um, so yeah, there is sometimes we'll even do that. So uh, so the splits serve a very clear purpose. Uh, also, uh, I tell editors and directors all the time, like take those sound design splits, and the more you work with with sound designers, like take those splits and start affecting other projects with it. Like if you love something from something, grab that sound effect split, put it in, and uh, and start crafting with sound with kind of prior splits too. And, um, but yeah, sometimes like, uh, you might go to a different country and you don't get a music license licensing, but you still have all the splits. You can cut it in, you can put a new music track. So it just gives you all of the, um, ability to, uh, go well beyond, um, just the English speaking world. Uh, that's real. I mean, that's the smartest thing that anybody making content can do is, is cheaply, um, not cheaply, but it is a cheap process typically to reversion content into more localized Thing. So yeah, that, that's kind of like expl- the explanation of why, why we have to provide all of that stuff. And every project is, is provided that way. And these days, are you just supplying digital files? Do you still put, lay stuff back to tape? Nope, no tape at all. Uh, since I started the company 10 years ago, I have not touched a DAT recorder or a DA88 or any of that stuff. It's all um, 4824 wave files all day, yeah. every day. <laughs> that's what I figured. <laughs> It's fascinating to get an insight into into all of that and and yeah to see all the parallels between kind of more traditional mastering and and what you're doing there. But I want to talk now about the 20,000 Hertz podcast which um is one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, I'm sure most people listening are already aware of it, but if not you need to head over to iTunes and subscribe. It's well, I mean maybe I should let Dallas why don't you give us the uh, the elevator pitch. Sure. So it's a uh... 
So 20,000 hertz, it's all spelled out, so there's no numbers in it. Um, I think if anyone here listening on this podcast, I don't really have to say what that means. We were at about 70 episodes, and it's a highly lovingly crafted podcast that tells the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. And so um, I wanted to make a piece of content that was for the general public um, that would tell stories about sounds to get people to really become emotional about, about certain sounds. So like very early on, I wanted to tell the whole story behind like the NBC chimes, like ding, ding, ding. Uh, there's a whole crazy, you know, beautiful story about that. Like why it is what it is, what it was trying to achieve, all of that. But since then we've, and another, um, like the very first episode was the voice on our phones, Siri. Uh, who is that? Like, how did that get programmed? Uh, all of that. Um, and since then, uh, I've had a string of, of 60, 60, plus counting episodes uh, covering specific sounds like the THX deep note, which ended up being a two-parter, two-part series because it was just so fascinating hearing uh, all of that. The thing that's a little bit interesting about our show is that it's um, like extraordinarily uh, deeply, meticulously um, produced. The workflow on that, uh, like we, we, on every episode, we spend about 150 upwards to 250 hours on every 20 minute piece of content. So if you can kind of, you can kind of see how much, how meticulous things get. Typically we're talking to like the foremost expert in the world on a particular brain science or subject that, that all surrounds sound, uh, or the person who actually made a thing that we all have heard before and they're telling this entire story. Um, but it's, it's narrated, uh, it's it's just uh, a mo- like very potent. Uh, it's short but incredibly like potent. Full of it just has a lot of uh, meat to it. It's fully sound designed, uh, fully scored. Every word is written and, and rewritten and rewritten again, and then spontaneously changed on the <laughs> when when I record myself. And so um, so it's just a uh, you know on a lot of levels. Like I made I wanted to make a show that like the general population could get behind to start falling in love with their sense of hearing. Uh, it's to solve a lot of the issues that we talked about before, um, where the rest of the world, we'll, we'll, us as the audiophile, audio engineer uh, folks, when we open this up to the world and say, hey, look how cool sound is, and not even from like a technical perspective, and the rest of the world starts to get involved and go, oh, you're, that's really cool. I want things to sound better here, and I want this better. It's just going to make it better for all of us. Like, we're going to get more work. We're going to get more jobs. We're going to get more questions. And, uh, and I, and I want to make shows and, and some things are topical. Some things are very deep. Um, some things are very happy and goofy and some things are very sad. Uh, you know, because sound is, 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 is important. Hearing is just as important as, as all of our other senses. And if you think about it, sound out of our five senses gets pigeonholed to the very last sense, uh, unless you're thinking about music. You know, so we're very visual creatures. Everything's designed by a human, very meticulously thought out. Um, their sense of taste, we think about it all the time. And if we don't like something, we don't eat it. And we curate our tastes. And uh, we, ex- we, we, we are very particular and we make sure that we stay within that pocket of our likes. We've got our, uh, our sense of touch. Um, you know, the chair that I'm sitting in, the desk, uh, the carpet, and uh, our clothes. Like, uh, all of that stuff. If something's uncomfortable, if something's poking you or, or like, sticking you, like... We, we fix it right away. And then we've got our sense of smell. Uh, sewage uh, takes care of that. We've got candles. We've got perfumes. We've got oils. We've got, you know, that it crosses over a bit into the, the sense of taste and all that stuff. So all of these four senses, um, 
we think about the, the culture, all of our culture thinks about all of our culture curates, all of our culture deems these senses very, very important. But if you separate music from sound and then you put sound into that bunch, people accept terrible sound. We accept the squeals of a bus. We accept the squeaks on our uh, doors. We accept like noise, uh, volume levels being way too loud, even to the point where we say that loud is good. And like, um, you know, culture is telling us things that are wrong and we're losing our hearing earlier and earlier. And so there's, there's this, this whole unexplored world of just sound and hearing that there's just not a place where just these stories are just coming out all the time and coming out all the time for the general public. And so that's what I wanted to make is something that's highly crafted that people can listen to uh, on the sound side and, and, and hold at a standard as being the, the best sounding or the highest standard quality of podcasting that you can get. Because I, I don't, I won't accept that, you know, we have a sound show that would be less quality than, uh, or, or we would take, you know, steps around sound quality in a sound show. We put every single hour that we can possibly put into it until we have to finally launch this thing. So we, we work as hard, everyone on this works as hard as we possibly can. We have many writers, freelance writers that are work for us. Um, every single person on the entire team is paid. Uh, and that was really important to me to make sure that the standards stay high quality and everyone's paid fairly minus me. Luckily, the audience size is large enough that we can we can get enough advertising to loop back in to pay everyone. So it kind of pays for itself, but I find it more of like a public service. I really enjoy doing it, but I also find it as like it's important for the world right now to um, to start to f- with all of the noise and the politics and the separation and the divides and like everyone talking you know, about them and us and all this stuff. Like I want to focus my life on like a thing that we can all enjoy together and fall in love with and enjoy and make better and agree on. Uh, and, and my, you know, calling in life has been to, you know, make the world sound better and whatever I can, whether it be sitting at a place and making a trailer itself sound better or telling a story about something that gets someone excited to go, um, start to start to enjoy nature or enjoy a piece of music more or um, or really just like get this like visceral experience from the sense of hearing that I would say that many of us who are listening to this podcast right now already get. Wouldn't it be nice if the rest of the world felt that way? And that's what the podcast is about. It also informs us of some sounds that we probably didn't think about all that much. Yeah. Like um, a lot of the interface uh, sounds for uh, Facebook and things like that. Um, I, I didn't really pay attention to them, even though I work in sound. I just like you just accept them. Yeah, I never thought about there was there was a, someone that made that, and they and they toiled over it, and they spent weeks and weeks and weeks, and who knows how long, like uh, iterating and and trying new things and trying to put the company's mission behind it, and you know everything being like so well thought out from such a such a high level. Um, there's a lot of that stuff. Uh, in particular, those episodes are like the Xbox sound or like the UI sound effects or like the NBC chimes or like the um, like Siri. Uh, there's just like so much thought that goes into the sounds that we don't even think about, even as sound people. Yeah. And um, it's just mm-hmm. fun to kind of like uncover this whole story. And then sometimes we're surpri- surprised because, uh, I mean, one of the most recent episodes that we did um, it's just a gorgeous story, uh, with Paula Fairfield, who's the sound designer in Game of Thrones. And, um, and of course, you know, you, you interview Paula Fairfield and she talks about the dragons and she talks about how she makes them. But in this, this case, you know, we found out that like she lost her mother and then she lost her sister and then she lost like 
you know, her father and like it, it all like happens, you know, in this very bad place where like when she got the job and like her career for these six, seven, eight, nine years, like these dragons grew with her and grew with her pain. And she put this pain and suffering into the sounds of these dragons. And, and like, when you hear this scream, like you're hearing her, like in her rawest, most emotional sense and millions of people are hearing this, but they don't know why it sounds the way that it does. And like, those are the stories that I just find so incredible. And I think that, you know, musicians and I think that sound designers and I think that people who make these sounds put so much of our heart and soul into it. And there's so much context for why we do what we do. And, and I just find it so important that we like get those stories out and just humanize this stuff. Like we live in a world of hot takes and, you know, Twitter limitations and all that stuff. And it's like, I want a place where we can dive deep and talk about nuance and, and, and creativity and, and, uh, hopefully inspire, not only creatives, but really inspire the world and, uh, you know, normal people to just really love, uh, the things that they hear and care about it and take care of their ears. Absolutely. I mean, I'm very, very jealous of your show because you've managed to put all of the, well, I say that I'm jealous. I'm not sure whether I would want to put 150 hours into, <laughs> into an episode of the mastering show, but you know, certainly, you know, this show is very simple. It's, it's people talking. Um, and yeah, you've got all of these creative elements in it. I mean, how, Obviously, you didn't have an audience to begin with. How did you were you were you thinking it would kind of be like a trailer for the company, and that was the justification for pouring all of that effort in initially, and then it just grew from there? Or did you always hope that you would get a massive audience and that it would go as it has? How did that work? It was a big risk uh, because uh, you know I, I did I do just say it's produced from DeFacto Sound. I don't talk about us. Uh, there's never like it's not I, even I use my own voice as a as a non-character in the story. So when you hear me talk, I don't talk about myself. Uh, almost never, unless there's a very specific reason to talk about myself. Um, and it's very strategic. Not like, oh, I also have a story like that. Um, typically, I, I try to keep remove myself from the story as much as possible and just let the story and the character shine through. But, you know, I was hoping that it might send some sort of business to de facto early on, uh, but I was really, really hoping that it would resonate with kind of the rest of the world more than anything. And that I was hoping that it would get large enough that we could have advertising to pay for it, pay for itself. Luckily when it came out, um, I mean the first episode that came out, maybe there was 150 people who listened to it, all my friends. And then two weeks later put out another episode and it was like 200 people. Then like, um, somebody that I know in the industry, uh, the host of 99% Invisible, uh, Roman Mars caught wind of it. And we've, we've been kind of like, uh, casual friends for years. We just met up early on when he made his show and this was six or seven years later. He listened to it and he was like, oh my goodness, I want to play the NBC Chimes episode on my feed. And he has, I think, I don't know, at the time, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, maybe even close to a million people who listened to that. And so uh, the day our third episode came out, he dropped our second episode on his feed and then it was just like a hockey stick and stats. It just went straight up. And so like it went from like a hundred to a couple hundred to like, hundreds of thousands, like over the course of the following weeks, uh, suddenly. And so it kind of was an explosion very quickly. And then of course, a lot of that started to settle and now we're in a very clear routine. Now it's, now our show's kind of in this, like about a hundred thousand people, uh, every two weeks listen to it. And I'm really proud that like a hundred thousand people, 99.8% of them are not audio people listen to a show about sound. Um, but I'm, I'm really thankful that like it resonated enough that it's, that it got to a place to where it could get advertising 
And then, because uh, the first 10 episodes, I paid everyone and, and I paid it straight out of pocket. Like I went into debt to do it. And then thankfully, like it, uh, uh, you know, the world and the universe rewarded that. And then it came back and it's non-political. It's non, you know, there's no politics, no cussing. Like it's very clean. It's all purposeful for that. Cause I want my, my six year old daughter to be able to listen to it. And I want my like 80 year old great grandmother to listen to it as well. And so, um, so yeah, it's very intentional on all of those, those points, but thankfully now, like we're in a, a financial situation where like the advertising pays for the, for the, the talent who works on it. And then, um, it could be daunting starting a new podcast with 70 episodes out there, but I'll tell but none of the episodes relate to each other. They're all independent, uh, from each other. So you can dive in anywhere and, and enjoy anything uh, along the way and, uh, whatever sounds good. I personally, my favorite episode is almost always the latest episode on our feed. Um, I also like space. So like our space remix episode is something that I like. Um, if you want to he- hear a little bit about just like trailer sound effects, uh, hand, uh, I don't know, six, seven back, we did something called the bouge, which is like a really funny show, uh, that kind of makes fun of, uh, the trailer form. So that's a kind of general spirit here, but there's a lot of variation. Again, it could be super happy. It could be super sad. It could be quirky and fun and it can be very sciencey, um, and all by design. Uh, it's it's really cool. Um, and you've uh, I was going to recommend some episodes. You've mentioned two of them: the the Mother of Dragons episode and the Booge episode. I really loved. And if people don't know what a Booge is, you need to listen to that episode and find out. Um, I also like the one about the the DTMF tones, the the phone tones. The doot, yeah. doot, doot, doot. Uh, I, that was kind of fascinating. But well, listen, Dallas, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and, and talk to us about all of this. Really enjoyed it everybody listening please do head over to what's the correct url for people to find it i mean they can subscribe in itunes or stitcher or spotify wherever they get their podcasts but yeah uh, what's the website so the website is 20k.org the very best thing to do is whatever podcast player you're in if you start typing in 20,000 hertz by the time you get to about to the n so t-w-e-n it should pop up click on it it's a purple icon that says 20,000 hertz tap subscribe and then let it just do its thing. Listen to something if it sounds good. Also, someone very familiar to you will be on a future episode, a future episode that might be a two-parter, a future episode that might also be about mastering that really? might be extremely deep and extremely, like, fun. So a huh. uh, little, little spoiler oh, that's really alert. interesting. I wonder who that could be. Yeah, it's... it's uh, I've listened to it, and uh, we've reviewed it, and we're working on it currently, and it is a exceptionally good episode that I would love for everyone here who's listening to my voice to go listen to when it comes out. And that's, we're probably looking at a um, month or two or so. So get it, get into the 20K, the little 20,000 hertz, uh, you know, vibe with some of these episodes, and then just look out for, for something that, that will be familiar. Excellent. Dallas, thanks again for being here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. This has been uh, such a blast and so epic and... I'm sure we could make an eight-hour episode of, uh, of this thing. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me. No, our pleasure. Thanks for coming. John, uh, thanks for helping out and mixing and editing the episode as always. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.